Community Church. My name is Shabu. I have the great privilege of being one of the pastors here at Canterbury, and particularly a welcome to you, church family. Some restrictions are easing, and you've been able to maybe travel a little bit further, and hairdressers are open. Can I hear an amen? Um, hopefully you didn't say that, by the way. I, anyway, uh, welcome, <laughs> and particularly if you're welcome to you, if you're exploring the Christian faith, discovering who Christ is, and maybe you haven't been to a church service for a long time and you're trying to reconnect with church. And we pray that God will continue to reveal himself to you. And I know in this season there are some of you who have actually joined our church in recent times because of our YouTube channel. Welcome. Uh, it was great to meet some of you recently and we look forward to meeting many of you soon. Um, this morning, what I wanted to begin with is asking a question. And this is particularly for those of us who call ourselves followers of Jesus, or particularly if you call Canterbury home even. If I ask you the question, what is the mission of the church, what would you say? If there was a Bible verse that you could use to back that up, what verse would you use? Now, this is a bit tricky because we can't interact uh, like we normally would if we were meeting in the building here. Maybe we might say, at the end of the day, the purpose of the church is to bring glory to Christ and to make disciples. So we might quote a verse such as this. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, and behold, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Now you could give many talks on that itself, but the question I have for you what is the motivation? Why do that? Why do we do this? What motivates a follower of Jesus to share the good news of the gospel? What motivates a whole church community to do this? What motivates you? What motivates me? With that in mind, what I want us to do is as we're about to listen to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 um, being read to us, I want us to ask this question. What's motivating Paul? What's motivating Sylvanus? What's motivating Timothy to minister to this church that they really love the good news of the gospel and to live out the implications of the gospel? So let's listen to the um, passage being read to us. Thanks, Beck. Good morning, church. I'll be reading from 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, and I'm reading the ESV version. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So, being affectiously desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves because you had become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labour and toil. 
We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his kingdom and glory. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. For you brothers became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews, who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets, and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they may be saved, so as always to fill up the measure of their sins. But his wrath has come upon them at last. Thanks, Beck. Friends, would you join with me in prayer? Lord Jesus, I come before you and ask that this morning that by your word we'll walk away knowing more of your heart and what motivation looks like to be on mission. Lord Jesus, I ask that you would be the centre and you would be the focus and the glory will go to you alone. Holy Spirit, I ask that you would empower me to proclaim these truths for the Son's glory. And so with that in mind, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable to you, Lord God, for your glory alone. In your mighty name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Uh, a few years back, there was this really big popular thing called motivational posters. Maybe you have one in your room or maybe you've seen one of those. They were really kind of like little statements that were said with a picture in the background. I used to find them quite funny because I would have in my mind something else that was an opposite to what that motivational poster might be saying. And then I discovered there's what's known as demotivational posters. Did you hear about this? I don't know if you've seen this. Here are a couple of my favorites. One, procrastination. I'll find a picture tomorrow. The second one is a Star Wars one, for those of us who are into Star Wars, hindsight. Those were really the droids you were looking for. Now you might be asking, what's that got to do with the sermon? What I want us to do is not be demotivated, but to be motivated in relation to mission. And with that in mind, I want us to consider two things. One, the motivation for mission, and two, the posture of mission. The motivation for mission and the posture of mission. Motivation for mission, what do I mean? As we've been discovering, the Apostle Paul, along with Silvanus and Timothy, are writing this letter to this church that they really care for and love. And they've been, this church in particular had faced significant persecution and challenges for their faith in Jesus. And so in chapter 2, verses 1 to 16, Paul wants to remind them again, not only that of their own motivation, why they do what they do, but also the posture of what it means. And that's displayed in the way that they minister to this church. And the reason why is because they want this church to imitate them, to encourage them to do the same as well. So look with me in verse 1. For as you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you is not in vain. 
But though we had already suffered and been shameful, treated Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God as declared to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not bring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed, God is witness. Nor do we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ, but we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. So, in these verses, that the significant amount of verses I just read again for you guys to listen to, Paul is explaining something here. See, for Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, who were apostles, they were people who were set aside for a mission, for a work. So they would go and proclaim this good news. And particularly in that time, they would go to the major city hubs to proclaim the good news of Jesus. And in this context, he calls it the good news of God. But he wants to remind them of a few things. Firstly, he says to them, hey guys, I want you to know, coming to you was not easy. Remember what happened in Philippi. Well, what happened in Philippi? You can actually read about that in detail in Acts 16. It's a beautiful story. The story of Lydia, who's a businesswoman who comes to Christ, the, the jailer who comes to Christ, the, the demon-possessed girl who's caught up in slavery who comes to Christ. And you can read a bit more about the church in the book of Philippians where you have the famous verses, to live as Christ, to die as gain. But while they were on this mission trip, they were facing significant challenges. And particularly, they were actually thrown into jail. So Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy were thrown into jail. And you can what Paul is doing in this moment is he's mentioning that particular incident. And he says to them, hey, guys, we suffered, verse 2, and we were treated shamefully. That means in actually in Acts 16, you can read about this, where they were beaten and most likely stripped naked or at least uh, down to their undies or undergarments. There's no trial, no hearing, and that's a significant thing because Paul pulls up the officials there at that time because he's a Roman citizen, so it's not done justly. And in all of this, Paul is saying for a reason. Now, why is he saying this? Is he saying it so that he can show off or to make the Thessalonians feel bad again or to show how awesome he is? I don't think so. See, for the ancient time and the ancient world, particularly in that time that Paul was doing ministry in, to be jailed, to, to have that kind of um, situation arise, it would actually ruin your reputation in any way, whatever you said. So that meant for Paul and his ministry, spreading the good news of the gospel, their reputation would have been ruined. That means the gossip chain would have been spreading, those emails and stuff is spreading around, and now they would have questioned everything that Paul had to say. And in the ancient world, that's a significant thing. That meant that if your ministry was ruined, if your name was ruined, you might as well pack up your bags and go home. It was a culture of honor and shame. Now, I think that's becoming more and more prevalent in our day and age. It's just a different world called cancer culture in our world. But here in Paul, uh, Paul Silvanus, and Timothy... They could have easily said, well, we're done. We've tried. We did our best. And what happens? In verse 2, did you see that? 
we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. See, their, their confidence, their courage, their boldness was not on their reputation that they had, or if they had any, or even their reputation actually being ruined. Rather, in God, the God who rescued them, the God who called them to this mission to continue to declare all of the gospel, even in the midst of conflict. Followers of Jesus, this is the true motivation for mission. It's actually not confidence in ourselves, in our own abilities, in our reputation. Rather, it's in God. Knowing that he is in control, even in the midst of conflict, that's where our confidence lies. So we join in his mission to declare the good news or the gospel of God. It's a nice fly flying around here, if you can hear that. Uh, if, it, if, it, if it lies in anything else or anyone else, either we will crumble at the opposition that is to come or will become a ministry that is shaped around ourselves. And because of this confidence and boldness, that they have in God, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, their motivation to declare the good news is now marked with no error or impurity or there's no attempt to deceive people. See, in that culture, in that time, there were many orators, many who would have gone around proclaiming many things. Here, what Paul is saying, because they're Message, their good news, is grounded in God, in the gospel of God, his word. This is why it has no problems with it. It has no errors with it. See, back in that day, many would also use their um, reputation, their influence, to ultimately promote sexual license. That is what something later on in Thessalonians we will address and many historians say there would have been um, um, sex cults in that culture in that time where there was encouragement to have multiple partners and even to have sex in front of the various deities and maybe even with the orators as a part of your worship. So Paul and Silvanus and Timothy are saying, this is not us. We're countercultural to this. We're not using you guys in any way for our own purposes at all. And what they're saying is... What you're seeing around you, we're totally the opposite. And the gospel and the good news that they declare is not there to bring to deceive anyone. Actually, it is to free people from their deception. And particularly in that day and age, there were many who would have gone around trying to deceive people just for their own selfish gain, and often it was for money. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy are saying their ministry is not marked with this at all. So what's underneath all of this? What's uh, the kind of conduct that they have in the midst of this mission? Have a look with me in verse 4 onwards. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. See, the motivation for Paul, for Silvanus and his team, is actually beyond themselves. What motivates them is that they have been approved by God to be entrusted with the good news of the gospel. This means for their focus, 
the reason why they declare the good news of God is actually defined by now who they are. That they've been approved by God. It's not based on their culture or background or experience or even giftings or even their family line or heritage, even their faith journey. Rather, it's because God approves of them. That they've been tested by God. They are seen as genuine in God's eyes as he approves of them. Man, what a, it is a freeing notion, really, a freeing thought for anyone looking to join God in his mission to declare the good news of the gospel. This is important for a church in Thessalonica. I mean, Paul is saying that he has authority as an apostle, so his words have the same authority as scripture, particularly in this context here. But also he's encouraging this young church to consider whose voice they should be listening to right in the midst of the persecution and challenges, both the challenges that they would have been facing within, internally, but also externally. What should matter to them is what God says about them. And as this truth seeps into the heart of Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, they know that this truth then, that is, they are approved by God, comes with responsibility. They have both experienced this in their own lives, and not only in their own lives, that this gospel has transformed them. Now this truth is pushing them out, and they've been entrusted with something. They've been given the gospel. So they go, they proclaim, they live out these truths, they share with everyone and anyone they come in contact with. And the primary audience, why they do this, is not to order to please their primary audience or people around them. Why? We speak not to please man, but to please God as God as our witness. So they're not going to accommodate themselves in order to please the opinion and preferences of others. There's only one they desire to do that for. God. God. And friends, um, followers of Jesus, and particularly church family, this is the motivation for mission. If this is not the motivation for mission, if it is not motivated by the confidence we have in God, then ultimately it becomes about ourselves. If it's not motivated by resting in that we are in Christ, that we have been approved because of Christ, then we'll find our motivation and approval in something or someone else. If our motivation is not knowing that we've been entrusted with this good news of the gospel, then this entrustment should push us out to be motivated on mission, not in order, like I said, to please others, but to please the one who has rescued us, God, through Christ. This is the motivation for mission. Now, what motivates Canterbury Gardens Community Church to join God in this mission? What is our motivation, church? See, if this is not a motivation either, we will not take it seriously or we will compromise and we will water it down or we will become arrogant in our declaration of the good news of Jesus. So, what does that actually look like? 
Well, that's what we want to consider now. What is the posture of mission? Uh, in my role with uh, City City Australia Church Planning Network, I have the great privilege, particularly in this season of COVID, where I've had the joy to Zoom with various church planners from uh, Asia Pacific. And one of the things I always find fascinating is when you have different cultures doing a Zoom meeting. And what you find in these moments is who the Australians are. The Australians usually tend to be the loud ones, always joking, sarcastic, that kind of stuff. While other cultures kind of look at us a bit strangely. I put myself in there because I've grown up here and I... Yeah, anyway. Now, whether we intentionally do this or unintentionally, sometimes what's happened is when there are certain leaders from other cultures sharing about certain things and asking questions and considering what mission looks like in this season, often you find certain cultures don't say anything. They'll quietly listen and they will ponder and consider. But the other cultures will step in and feel like they've got the answer and say, this is what you must do. This is what it looks like. So turn around and do this now. I'm not sure if that's what it looks like to be a posture of mission, what true good posture of mission looks like. Okay, well, what if you're at work and you start a new job and there's a supervisor or a manager comes along or a boss that wants to train you and their way of training you is ultimately to kind of stand over you, to kind of berate you, kind of make you do things and, and to somehow force you to learn in the most not helpful way at all. And when you do something really good, what they end up doing is they take the glory from you and make it for themselves and say, look what I've done. How many of you would be excited to go to a workplace like that? Or maybe even in our church context, you know? Uh, sadly, I've been in situations where one situation, or not in this church, where a leader was, uh, I was sharing with a leader and I, say, I said, you know, about this one particular person who had turned away from God and had gone into a relationship where they eventually got married with a non-Christian. And their response was straight up, well, haven't they read the Bible? While another Christian leader I shared the same thing with, they said, oh, that really is sad. I wish I could come alongside them and say, hey, we love you. This is not a good decision. This is unwise. It is not what God desires for you. Your disobedience will not go well for you. Will you turn back to Christ? See the difference there? It's a different posture. See, for Paul and Sylvanus and Timothy, all they knew was that they were approved by God, which moved them to live a life pleasing for him alone. But it did not give them any kind of excuse to become jerks for Jesus all of a sudden. There was a posture that really shaped their mission. What was that posture? Well, have a look with me in verses 5 to 12. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed, God is witness. Nor did we see glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaimed to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct towards you believers. For you know how, like a father, 
with this children, we exhorted each one of you, encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Now, there's a lot in there. What I want you to consider is the kind of posture that they have in their mission to the Thessalonian church. On one hand, you have the wrong kind of posture. You know, if you had a chart, on one chart you would write the wrong posture. On the other chart, you would write the right posture. On the wrong posture, words of flattery. You know, you're just sort of trying to win them over by saying really nice and always nice and helpful things, but never, which is the right posture, speaking truth in love. The wrong posture with pretext for greed, meaning that they, they, were, they were interested far more for their own gain and for their own benefits. Rather, the right posture, particularly in this context, is not looking for financial gain. They're not in it for the money at all. The wrong posture, they weren't there to find glory from people, the praises of people. Rather, the right posture was there's only one audience that they are um, um, serving, that is God himself. The wrong posture is to demand. I mean, this is the apostles. They can if they want to. They can pull rank if they choose to as they plant this church. No. They could have demanded as apostles of Christ. No, they showed humility instead. Uh, The wrong posture, they're actually not gentle. They don't actually care. There's sort of a roughness in the way that they instruct uh, this church. No. The right posture They were gentle. What kind of gentleness? What's the beautiful picture of a gentle? Like a mother nursing. The wrong posture, they're not interested. They're thinking about their own themselves. They're not interested in ministering with care or compassion. The right posture, they're so affectionate. The language is they're so strong here. They're desirous of of them. They're so ready to share with them not only the good news of the gospel, that they're willing to share their lives themselves because now this church had become more than a church. It was their brothers and sisters in Christ. The wrong posture, that is, to burden them, to actually think about their own purposes and their own needs, particularly in this context financially most likely. The right posture That is, they labor and they toil. They worked night and day. What that means most likely is that when these guys were in Thessalonica, they didn't want to get any money from them, so they worked most likely during the day. They didn't want to be a burden as they proclaimed the gospel, which means they're not actually focused on themselves or their needs. Then there is also the other wrong posture. That is, their life is not worth imitating. The right posture, it says, you are witnesses in God also. They're holy and righteous and blameless. Their conduct towards the believers. And how that displayed is like a fatherly love towards them, like children, exhorting them, encouraging them, and walk, ask, encouraging them and charging to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you. This is a picture of like a parent discipling and encouraging them. This is gracious picture. Friends, in all of this, there's this real beautiful way that I think we have lost in our day and age. That is a picture or posture of humility that shapes the very character of the apostles. Which means their posture of mission 
is not of one demanding and saying, give. Rather, it is to say, take. To serve them. To love this church. See, in our day and age, when we think about leadership, there's probably a very variety of things. But traditionally, leadership is seen as, in, let's go, let's charge my way or the highway. You know, this is how it is, and whether you question me or not, doesn't matter, this is how it's all going to go. See, the biblical worldview is very different. The Christian leadership model is totally opposite. It needs to be marked by humility and servant heart. And if you want to push that further, see, that means for us as a church to minister to one another and to the broken world around us, to our friends who do know Jesus and the friends who don't know Jesus, it has to be a posture of humility. See, when people see that kind of humility being displayed, it, it, it stirs something in them to go, this is different, you're here to serve. That's a bit different than the culture that says, let's take, take, take. As a church, as we read this, it should stir in us also the questions that we should be asking. Is this true of the leaders of Canterbury Gardens Community Church? Whether you're an elder, whether I'm an elder, whether if you're a pastor, whether if you're a member of the committee of management, whether if you're involved in creative ministries, whether if you're a small group leader, whether you're a CIA, CIA youth leader. For those of us listening, we're not as um, like a spy agency. It's Christ. Anyway, kids' church leaders, whether if it's terrific over 50 leaders, whether if it's the young adult leaders, whoever you are and you're seeing yourself as a leader at Canterbury Gardens Community Church, is this the kind of posture that we have, myself included. And church, if that's not true, we need to repent, we need to cry out for God, for mercy, and we need to ask him to change us to become such leaders. See, and if you're someone who's aspiring, aspiring to be a leader of any kind at our church, what the leadership is far more concerned about is character. Character trumps skills. Character is far more important in that Christ in you, his character being displayed, is far more important than the very skills and abilities and maybe even giftings that we might have. See, all those things are great because they're from God and we can use them for his glory, but sometimes they can be self-reliant for selfish purposes. This is why character is important, friends. Such posture and character will help the mission of God to flourish. And I would say I have dropped the ball so many times on this. And I want to repent of that, even now. Author and pastor, uh, Timothy Keller, puts it this way. The Christian gospel is that I am so flawed that Jesus had to die for me. Yet I am so loved and valued that Jesus was glad to die for me. This leads to deep humility and deep confidence at the same time. It undermines both swaggering and sniveling. I cannot feel superior to anyone, and yet I have nothing to prove to anyone. I do not think more of myself nor less of myself. Instead, I think of myself less. See, that's 
the right posture for mission, that is to be thinking less of ourselves and thinking more of how God sees us and then how we can serve rather than think who we are and what we can get. In other words, that we become the center. No, we are not the center. We are not the center of the universe. God is at the center. The gospel, the good news of the gospel is at the center. And when that happens, when fruit happens, when there's growth, then the glory goes to him because it's God who has done it. The Apostle Paul would write in other places like Corinthians where he says he planted somebody else water, but who produced the fruit? God did. And last week, as we looked at 1 Thessalonians 1, Paul asked them to actually be imitators of them. And I know that's strange in our culture. Well, he continues this line of thinking, verses 13 to 16. But this time, he turns around and saying, hey, you see that same fruit in them? What is that fruit? The word of God is at work in them. That's the imitation that's being displayed. It's not unique to them, actually. It's not unique to the Thessalonian church. But it is a, a, a testament, a marker, what displays to everyone as a witness what is the church of God in Christ. In other words, the motivation for mission, this posture of mission, cannot happen unless the word of God is at work in the life of the believers of that church. And this is what marks a church that is God in Christ should look like. And when it does, will everything go so beautifully, awesome, no problems, no issues? No, definitely not. The church that Paul is writing to face suffering and trial from their own countrymen. And we read that in Acts 17. Do you remember those guys were thrown into jail? Just like Paul and Silvanus and Timothy also faced that from their own countrymen for proclaiming the gospel. See, when the motivation of a church community is grounded by who they are in Christ. See, when the motivation of a church community is grounded to please God and not man. See, when the motivation of a church community has a posture of humility in relation to mission, opposition will come. And what is our response? Friends, our response is actually not to look down at ourselves, but to look up, to look away from ourselves. This is what Paul and others who went before them did. They actually looked to their Lord as their example, to Jesus Christ, the one whose life was perfectly lived in this beautiful reality, the one who the Father said, this is my Son in whom I am well pleased full approval of the Father as the Son, the perfect one, the Messiah, the Savior of the world who will take away the sins of the world. This formed his earthly ministry and his motivation for mission was also driven by this characteristics, this posture. What is that posture? Jesus speaks of it himself in Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 to 29. He said, come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. 
His posture of mission was full always, constantly and continuously in humility and displayed in the most powerful way. The one who has always existed, the one who was there when the creation of the world, the one who is powerful and mighty, who could stop a storm, who could raise the dead, the one was willing to humble himself, not only to wash the dirty feet of his disciples, but to die on a cross and to be humiliated on your behalf and mine. To die on the cross both for the religious ones like you and me and the irreligious ones like you and me. So, this morning, church, what motivates you and I to share the good news of Jesus? May it never be pride or arrogance or even for selfish gain. May it be because of who we are in Christ. What kind of posture do you and I have when it comes to caring and loving one another and joining in God's mission? May it also be filled with humility and not pride. And the remedy for all of this constantly, daily for you and I, will be just as Paul did, was to look to their Lord to rest in his work, to be far more growing in our focus on what his opinion is of us rather than the opinion of the world around us. This means, for you and I who are private faith followers, I want you to know there is no private faith when it comes to following Jesus. Our faith are meant to be in public. This is what you've been given. You've been entrusted with the good news of the gospel. I've been entrusted with the good news of the gospel. This is not just for pastors or missionary or ministry leaders. Everyone who proclaims that Jesus is Lord. It means that when we share the good news of Christ, that there is only one way to God, that is through Jesus Christ, through Christ alone, guess what? This message is exclusive. It means when we speak of Christ, when we speak of his authority, when we speak of his lordship, when we speak of judgment, when we speak of grace, when we speak of hope, when we speak of all these things and much more when in relation to the gospel, it will not be necessarily a popular message with many. But it shouldn't change our attitude and response. We still do it with humility. This means for those of us who have been following Jesus for a long time, does this gospel, this good news that you've been approved because of Christ in you, does it create in you a world, I shouldn't say a world, a heart, a posture that continues to grow in you and I, for those of us who have been following Jesus for a while, sense of humility, not a journey of cynicism or arrogance or pride. One way to wonder is, is our life worthy of imitation? And if you said no way, maybe that's a great space to start. Because I would be worried if you and I said, yep, 
definitely. Friends, I don't know, but I look at my own life and I think, not worthy of imitation. But that's the whole point. You begin there because of Christ in you. Because Christ in you is what people want to see. That's who they want to imitate Christ's work in your life as it's displayed in all the spheres of your life. We are a church called to be motivated for mission to declare the gospel of God. Not to please man, but to please God alone. We are, as a church, called to have a posture of humility in mission as we minister to each other and to those around us. So what they ultimately see is Jesus Christ. And may it be all for his glory. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, I pray and ask that you would create a culture in our church, one that we are motivated for mission based on who we are in you, that we are motivated with such a posture of grace and humility, just as you displayed. Oh, we know we can't do this in our own strength. Oh, Holy Spirit, would you empower us to live such a way, all for the name and glory of Christ Jesus, our Lord, the one who will return. In your name we pray.